Good morning, everyone. I'm not used to preaching on Communion Sunday, so I feel like I'm in an interview, actually, here with all these men right here in front of me. Um, I just want to give a little disclaimer. I hope that you all come to our luncheon. It's called Breakfast at Lunch. It involves a whole lot of egg casserole stuff. And I just want to say that um, we were preparing the egg casserole yesterday, and one of my main jobs was to crack the eggs, to crack, like, hundred dozen eggs, it felt like. All I was doing was cracking eggs, cracking eggs, getting the mess all over my fingers, throwing the shells. And I was going really fast, and all of a sudden, uh, I was working with Bria and Ben, and Bria said to me, wow, I didn't know you were so efficient in the kitchen, because I don't cook, okay? I cannot cook. Ask my husband. It's just not my thing. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm really good, and I'm starting to show off then. Now I'm going faster, you know? And then when it was all over... Some of the girls were going to wash the dishes, and they were finding a whole bunch of bowls with uh, eggshells still in the mix. So just a disclaimer that don't blame my poor little youth people. It wasn't them. If you meet the end of your days this afternoon because you choke on an eggshell, that was me, okay? Because that's my, that's my job. If you'd bring up the PowerPoint for me, um, the message this morning is called Pondering the End to Engage the Present. Pondering the end to engage the present. And that title might seem like a bit of an oxymoron, but in reality, according to the Bible, the best thing that we can do is to think to the end of a course of action, to the end of our lives, and think to the end of the world as we know it in order to properly live and engage the present the way God intends us to. Now, we live in a culture that is very much in the here and now, Get what you can, eat, drink, and be merry while you can. But that is not what the Bible teaches. And so I'd like to share this morning, not only with our graduates, with our middle-aged people, with our senior citizens, with everybody here, that we need to ponder the end to properly engage the present moment. So if you would bow your heads with me for a moment. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are here with us in the sanctuary today. And I just pray that you open up your word, help us to live how we ought to live, with a proper perspective. We need to be reminded that we have a very real enemy who is trying to steal from us the right way to live. But help us to focus on your perspective and to know what it is that you are saying. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now again, this may seem like an oxymoron, but it's really not. God wants us to live with the end in mind in order to live successfully in the present moment. As I was thinking about this message and writing the title, I actually considered the title to be Morbidity is Not Stupidity, Raising Your Spiritual IQ. (laughs) How many of you like that one better? Okay, I thought that might have gone better in the advertising, but then I thought, well, this is Graduate Sunday, and we will be the only church in the United States of America honoring high school graduates with the title, Morbidity is Not Stupidity. So I thought, uh, but pondering the end to engage the present. As I was getting the message ready, and I was like, God, is this really what you want me to speak on on Graduate Sunday? I got delivered to my mailbox one of my favorite magazines is Christianity Today. Anybody else subscribe to that? It's a good journal, good good magazine to get. And it came in the mail, and I started reading it right away, and I went to one of my favorite sections, which is the book review section, and I thought, God, thank you for your confirmation. Of all things, the book review section for Christianity Today, when I was uh, reading it, 
is the review of a book that's titled Death by Living. Now, I'm not endorsing the book because I haven't read the book. I only read the review of the book. But the review's title is You Only Die Once. And the subtitle there in greenish-yellow, which you may or, not, may or may not be able to see, the reviewer says of the author, Wilson paints a portrait of living joyfully underneath the horizon of mortality. It is absolutely 100% true that you can't live with the joy and the victory that you are supposed to live with unless you first grapple with and deal with your own mortality and death. Amen? That is, that is a very true statement. The Bible says, Jesus specifically said in John chapter 10 and verse 10, he said, I have come that you might have life and have it what? More abundantly. He said the thief will come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And one of the ways that the enemy is stealing from us is we're so fixated on the here and now and what we can gather and make of ourselves right now in this moment with no thought for what is going to happen in the end. And so the enemy is stealing from us. But Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Now, I do want to pause and just say that when Jesus said, I want you to have life more abundantly, he did not mean... I want you to get saved, and then you're going to grow healthier, wealthier, and more successful and happier as time goes on. How many of you can testify in this room that's not what happens? Okay? That is not what Jesus meant by abundant living. When he talked to his disciples about the peace that would be with them and the joy that they would have in the midst of their persecution and ultimately their martyrdom, what he was trying to say to them was, you can have such a zest for life, such a joy and such a peace inside of you, no matter what is going on around you, because you know you are right with me, and one day when you meet me, you are going to go to a place called heaven, which is a home of righteousness, where everything will be as it ought to be. And Jesus was saying, your life is abundant now because you are currently engaged in becoming a person that can rightfully exist in a home of righteousness. Amen? This life is not about my comfort. I get true joy, though, even through the trials that I go through because God is making me into the Shelley Prindle that he wants me to be for eternity. And that's what matters. I'm currently reading a book by Charles Swindoll. He's a great writer, and I'm writing a book about the li- reading a book about the life of Job. And in that book, here's what Charles Swindoll said. He said, we need to understand that God's wonderful plan is wonderful from his perspective, not yours and mine. To us, wonderful means comfortable, healthy, all bills paid, no debt, never sick, happily married with two well-behaved children, a fulfilling, well-paying job, and the anticipation of nothing but blessing and success and prosperity forever. That's wonderful to us, but God's wonderful plan is not like that. That's very important to keep in mind. We want to live with true peace. We want to live with true meaning, but it doesn't mean that everything will be easy. It means that I have a meaning and a peace inside of me that is so much deeper than circumstance. Now, the same Jesus who said, I want you to have life and have it more abundantly, is also the one in Hebrews 9.27 that clearly says to us, it is appointed for a man and a woman to die once, and after that comes judgment. That's the word of God. So I know this is Graduate Sunday and we're all celebrating new beginnings, but I want to tell you something. Your death is going to be the beginning of something too. Amen? 
And the Bible makes very clear that it is appointed for a man or a woman to die one time and after death to face the judgment of God. The unsaved will face the great white throne judgment and those of us who are saved will face the judgment seat of Christ. But every single person sitting in this room, no matter if you're graduating from high school, just starting a family, having a midlife crisis, or about to enter the nursing home, it is appointed for you to die one time and then face God. Amen? That's a sobering thought, but it's also a beautiful thought. I wake up every morning and I try to keep that in the forefront of my mind, and it causes me to live my days in a way that is much different than the world lives their days. Recently, I was riding past an old Baptist church, and I actually saw a cemetery by the church. How many of you remember when you used to see this? Churches had the cemeteries right there on their property. Now, we don't see that so much anymore, and I've been in the process of trying to research how that has all come about for change. But suffice it to say that now, when we build churches, we make the buildings really pretty, we remove any hint of anything bad, we certainly don't want cemetery around it, make them pristine and beautiful, hire great landscapers, right? There was something to be said for the day when churches had the cemeteries of their own people right there. I personally think that's a cool thing. And I don't know the exact reason in every denomination that this was done, but I can guess this. If every time you go to walk into the house of worship, you are confronted with the ultimate end of you, you think about what you need to do. Amen? I think it was a very neat concept. And I personally like looking at graveyards and being near cemeteries. And I've said this before. I hope I'm driving near one or walking through one when Jesus comes back. Because I can't wait to see the bodies of Christians coming out of the tomb and rising to new life. But I want to tell you something. Thinking about death makes us realize just how severe sin is. Are you with me? People don't like to think about the severity of sin because we don't want to deal with it. We don't want to be accountable for it, and we don't want to deal with it. But sin is so severe that it is the reason that one day, if Jesus doesn't return, I will die and be buried in the ground because of my sin. But me facing death and looking at a grave and thinking, someday, Shelley, you're going to be there, makes me realize how serious my sin is because Romans 6.23 says that death is the result of sin. The wages of sin is death. But it makes me realize how serious the problem is, which is a good thing, so that then I can realize how serious the answer is. Amen? Sin is so serious it causes death. And death is so bad that Jesus came so that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I don't get depressed looking at a grave. What I get is excited that my Jesus conquered that enemy for me. And when I look at a grave and I think about my own demise, and I know I've shared this before, I'll just share it one more time. God does things in weird ways to get a hold of our attention. Me suffering under an illness for 31 years has caused me to think about death much more than other people would ever think about it which in turn has caused me to truly live. Amen? And that's what this is about. We need to ponder the end to engage the present. Our culture does not like the concept of delayed gratification. 
Now, delayed gratification, I got this quote, this definition, I thought it was a good one, off tween parenting, okay? So if you're the parents of tweens, this is where I got this, off their website. It's a good definition. Delayed gratification is the ability to put off the receipt of an immediate reward in order to gain a better reward later. Now, when I used to teach a Bible in Christian high school, one of the courses I taught was Christian marriage and family. And the first thing that we did was show young people how you move from being a teenager to an adult and what the marks of maturity are. Now, unfortunately, I still know some 40-year-olds that don't have these marks of maturity. But one of the marks, it's serious, you think about it in your own life, one of the best marks of maturity that you've moved from uh, teenager to true adult is the fact that you understand delayed gratification. Now, I'll give you practical examples. When I was teaching high school Bible and math full-time and starting to work on Hope and Passion Ministries, I knew distinctly that God was calling me to go back to school for my master's degree. So here I am teaching full-time and going full-time back to school, seven-week classes back-to-back. And many times during that period of time, I would come home from teaching the little angels that I taught in high school. They were all just wonderful angels, and it was just a breeze. And when I was done teaching, I was like floating on a cloud. Oh, what a wonderful day. So I'd come home floating on that cloud, and the one thing that I really wanted, the gratification, the reward that I wanted right in front of me was to lay on the living room couch and watch Andy Griffith reruns. That's what I wanted. Anybody else ever want Andy Griffith reruns? Thank you, Glenn. Okay, so that's what I really wanted. But delayed gratification says this. I looked out 15 months down the road and said, you know what? There's a master's degree waiting for me. And so that is more important to me than this immediate reward of watching Andy Griffith. I need to hit the books and study and get working because there's a greater reward down the road. Another example of delayed gratification is exercise, you know, physical exercise, okay? There are many mornings when I wake up, and the instant reward that I want is to pull the covers back over my head and go back to sleep. But down the road, I'm looking and saying, okay, I'm an insulin-dependent diabetic. I've got to stay healthy. I'm going to get up, and the goal, the reward of better bodily health is out in front of me, and so I get up, and I get on the exercise bike, and I start riding. That's delayed gratification, but the Bible says in 1 Timothy 4.8 that while physical training is of some value, and we've got to get this clear because we're living in a culture that values the physical body and its health more than the health of the soul, amen, that while physical training is of some value, the training of the soul lasts not only from this life but into the next life, amen? And so more important than delaying gratification or looking out and saying, oh, a master's degree is a real reward. I'm going to go towards that. Bodily health is a real reward. I'm going to go towards that. Graduating from college, that's a real reward. Getting this job is a real reward. Having this relationship is a real reward. Greater than all of those realities is the reality that you will stand before your maker and answer for yourself. The greater reward is that one day I will stand before God and God will usher me into his kingdom by the grace of Jesus Christ and I will be able to hold my head up and say, because of Jesus I am here and I was on a road to becoming more and more holy so that I could fit in this place called heaven. Amen? That's the biggest reward. And we should be willing to, de de to delay the gratification in this life. You know, we, we want so many things in the here and now. I want to work more hours so I can make more money, have a bigger house, have more cars, do this, do that. Really? Because someday you're going to die. 
And what does it all matter? R.C. Sproul, the great Bible teacher, said, What a man believes about the future always shapes how he lives in the present. How you are living right now is completely related to what you really believe about what's going to happen to you. We are doing our young people and our culture a disservice if we ignore the topic of death and accountability. Amen? Psalm 39. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn there. I want to reread verses 1 to 3. Psalm chapter 39 is a psalm of David. Now, let me just explain while you're turning there that the previous chapter, Psalm 38, David is really heartbroken in Psalm 38 because he's being disciplined by God for a sin in his life. Now, we're not told what that particular sin is at this time, but he is really, really laboring under the discipline of God. He's very upset, and he's asking God to please forgive him for his sin, to please restore him, to give him joy, to not forsake him. And it's on the heels of Psalm 38 that we read Psalm 39, which is another psalm of David. We don't know particularly what's going through his mind. It could be that discipline he's going through. It could be some other trial, some other problem. But in Psalm 39, verse 1, we hear, and you can identify with this, if you've ever had some turmoil in your heart, some confusion in your heart, and you just wanted to blurt out all kind of stuff because of it. Has anybody ever done that? But nobody's actually ever blurted it out, right? Yeah. You can ask my husband if I ever do. Never. Okay, Psalm 39. Here we go. I said I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. So here's what's happening. David, there's something going on in his heart. He's in trial. He's in turmoil. And what he's saying is, and we commend him for this, he's saying, look, while all this is going on inside of me, I don't want to blurt out bad things about God in front of the wicked. So I am going to literally muzzle my mouth. I'm going to stop myself from saying something that I shouldn't say. But I'm in turmoil. And he says, the more I tried to do that, the hotter my heart got, because the Bible says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We were designed that way. So the more he's trying to withhold from saying anything, the worse it's getting. And so finally, David does what each of us should do. And instead of blurting out his troubles and all of his complaints to other human beings and defaming God and getting nothing really accomplished, David decides to pray. And I would advise every one of us that as we go through times of confusion or turmoil, that instead of blurting anything out to anybody, we go to God and pray. Amen? He can take your blurting. God's been blurted out before. He knows what it feels like, okay? So David goes to him and he decides to pray. And I find this so interesting because how many times when we have been in trouble or confused, is this the prayer that we pray? Like, I know if, if it's me, I'll kneel down somewhere, I'll start pacing through my house. God, please help me. You know, do this or this or that, the thing that I know that you should do. Help me to feel good. Help with blah, blah, blah. May give me peace. You know what David prays? Something very interesting. He says, Lord, make me know my end. What? Yeah, that's his prayer. Make me know the end of me. Help me to put things in perspective. Make me to understand 
that I am just Shelly Prindle. And that a day from now or 10 years from now or 30 years from now, I will die. I am finite. I am nothing compared to you. David said, help me to know the measure of my day. Let me know how fleeting I am that I will soon disappear and stand before God and answer for my life. That it is not about me. It is about him. He said, let me know my end. And then he expounds this and he says, Behold, God, you have made my days a few hand breaths. Now in the Hebrew, the word for hand breath literally means the distance, the width of your hand, the distance across your palm or these four fingers. That's a hand breath. And so David was literally saying, God, you've made my days just a few hand breaths. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I get discouraged or I get confused or frustrated, I will go into the office at my house or go to the kitchen table, and there are times when literally I'll do something like this. I'll be like, God, please help me. Have you ever done that? You kind of put your head down, you slam your hands down. Lord, I need some help here. I'm confused. And I realized as I was reading the scripture that when I do that or when you do that, What we have just laid down for ourselves is a few hand breaths. Because when I put my hands like this, I have room for one more hand in the middle. Just three hand breaths from shoulder to shoulder. And I started pondering what David said. And it's as if he was saying, God, help me to remember that this is, this is like, my life is like this to you. And and all it is, is I'm looking at these fingers, I'm looking at the back of my hands, and by the way, as we get older, the veins start to come out, you know. They start to get, I got this football injury, crooked finger that's still not taken care of, you know. You look at the back of your hands when when you do something like this and you think, my life. I get up every morning and I use these fingers to brush my teeth and I do my blood tests. I use these hands to shake your hand, to to hug somebody, to get on my computer, to type an email, to pick up a book, to read it, to play in the dirt for kids. Just a few hand breaths. That's all it is. And then I'm gone. And what are these hands doing? Because they're going to be remade. Resurrected to life for heaven or resurrected to eternal damnation in hell. But there's an end to me. David said, you've made my days a few hand breaths. My lifetime is as nothing before you. And then he said something very critical. He said, surely man goes about as a shadow. Now look at these words. Surely for nothing we are in turmoil. We heap up wealth and we don't know who will gather it. If you look back over your life, the older that you are, how many of you would testify and say, oh, the turmoil, the tears and the frustration that I have spent just trying to amass more and more stuff? It's a sad commentary. It is the tendency of the human heart under the prince of the power of the air who says, work more hours, Make more money, live for stuff, accumulate what you can. And David said, Lord, help me to know my life is brief. It's eternity that matters. And I can be in turmoil trying to get all this stuff and it means nothing. When I die, I cannot take it with me. 
The only thing I take with me is the treasure I'm already currently laying up in heaven. Amen? How many of you in this room already have treasure in heaven? You've already passed it on. That's what we're doing. That's what it's about, okay? He says, make me know my end. And I would say to the young people who are graduating, don't go to college being a pragmatist. We Christians are not pragmatic. That means we don't do whatever just works for us. You shouldn't pursue a career or or obtain a job or do anything just for the sake of that's how much money I will make and that will make me be able to buy this big of a house and have this many cars or it will give me this much social status. That is not why we make decisions. Amen? We make decisions because it is appointed for a man or woman once to die and then face the judgment of God and what we did with our lives. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 says, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I know when I was, you know, writing this, I was talking to my parents and my brother, and I was like, wow, this is so funny. You know, graduation Sunday, and you're talking about pondering death. Look, this applies to young people as much as it applies to old people. Maybe even more so. If you want to be truly wise, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You can't even get to wisdom without the fear of the Lord. Are you with me? You can have a lot of facts. You can have a lot of head knowledge. You can have 100 degrees behind your name, and you can be totally ignorant and a fool. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But I want you to notice something. We quote this verse all the time, but here's the deal. It says the fear of the Lord. In other words, my reverent knowledge that he holds my life in his hands and there isn't a thing I can do about it except serve him. Amen? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, I want to end this message by going to a real-life historical example of how young people, not old people, young people pondered the end to engage the present. Because this applies to everybody. It applies to you if you're 10 years old or if you're 100 years old. The fear of the Lord is the, beginning of, uh, is the beginning of wisdom. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego pondered the end to engage the present. Now, how many of you know how old Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are, were when they were taken captive to Babylon and started their great education? Anybody? They were teenagers. So if you don't think this applies to our graduates today, you're wrong. They were teenagers. Now, stay with me on this. Listen. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were teenagers when they were taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar, taken off to Babylon, and the Bible is very clear that these young men were strapping young men. They were healthy, they were physically fit, they were good-looking, and they were highly intelligent, and they were being educated in the best university of the day right in the king's court. You with me? I don't care how smart you are, what kind of future you think you have in front of you, how much success may be laid out there, you still need to ponder the end to engage the present. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, one time when I did a seminar, I was asked to do a middle school leadership conference on wisdom, and I came up with this acrostic, SMAFFLE. I still have kids like 10 years later. SMAFFLE, SMAFFLE, Mrs. Prindle, SMAFFLE. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego applied the fear of the Lord. We're afraid to have our young people think fearfully about God. What? God is good. He loves you. Yes, he does. But you will answer to him. 
One day you will stand before him and you need to apply the fear of the Lord. Ponder the end to engage the present. And this is what these young men did. You know the story and I won't belabor the point. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had a choice to make. They were being educated in the best university. They were good-looking, intelligent, you know, highly athletic, had everything going for them. Their whole future was out in front of them. It It looked only bright. And then all of a sudden, they were asked to compromise. They were asked to turn against their God and bow down to a false idol and worship this statue that Nebuchadnezzar set up. Now, I contend that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego projected down through the annals of time, and they heard the heartbeat of Jesus Christ himself, what he spoke in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. When Jesus talked to his disciples who were about to be persecuted and martyred for their faith, he said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, the first thing he said was, Do not fear those who can kill the body. In the present tense. He said to his disciples, you're about to be wildly persecuted and they are going to do stuff to your body. The devil is going to be able to touch your body and do stuff to your body. Do not fear him. Now Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they had everything right in front of them. Their whole future was in place. And they had a decision to make. In the present, we would really like the instant gratification of staying cool. Literally cool. And not going in the industrial-sized furnace. And by the way, young people, that wasn't like a furnace like you have in your downstairs basement that heats your house. We're talking about a furnace as big as Wendy's restaurant, you know what I'm saying? An industrial-sized furnace, this giant thing. And they knew it was instant death. And these young people, with their whole future laid out in front of them, said, you know what? We can look at the present and say, Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body. And they projected out to the end, to the future, and said, but he also told us, rather we should fear God, who can destroy both our soul and our body in hell. Now, when you're young, there is the danger that you feel death will never come to you. I don't care how old you are in this place today, we are all eventually going to die. And our safety is in Jesus Christ. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, intelligent, young, athletic, good-looking people with their entire lives in front of them, said this, we will trade these 80 or 90 more years that we might have on this earth because we realize when it comes to God, that's like nothing compared to infinity. We will trade those years and we will go into that furnace, but we will not turn our back on the God who has the power to damn our souls forever. And that's what they did. They pondered the end to engage the present. And you know what happens. Standing on that fact, standing on Jesus Christ himself, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into the furnace, and Jesus went right in there with them. Amen? And he preserved them, and he saved them. They pondered the fires of hell to engage the fire of the furnace. And they won. And I would say to the young people who are in the room and our graduates and all you middle-aged people and all you senior citizens, I don't care what age you are, I want to tell you this. You need to ponder the fire in the end to engage the fire of turmoil you're going through now, and you need to make the right decision. When you go to school, when you go to college, when you work in the world, when you build relationships, when you're out in the workplace, you stand for God Almighty without compromise. You ponder the end to engage the present. When we do this, what God has told us to do, we begin to understand that there is an end to us while there's no end to God.
we realize that we have to hitch ourselves to the eternal. And the one who ties the knot is Jesus. See, I'm just little Shelley Prindle standing here, and I'm going to end. God will never end. I need to be hooked to the eternal. I need to ponder the end. I need to be attached to God who lasts forever and who can protect me. And the one who ties that knot and latches me on is Jesus Christ our Lord. Ponder the end to engage the present. Would you bow your heads with me for a moment?